So I was on GMA in October of 2019. At the time, I had 8,000 followers. Now we have 2 million. It's, what, August of 2021. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today's guest is Tori Dunlap, founder of Her First 100K. But before we get into the episode, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. A lot of big stuff going on. We are moving deep into that closing process with the house that we found in Austin, which is super exciting. I've learned an insane amount. I can imagine us doing a, another solo episode on real estate just to go over all those like little technical details that you learn through the contract process and just all the back and forth negotiations. So that's been really interesting. Praiser came earlier in the week. And so hopefully we'll get that soon. That's really the last piece of the puzzle. I'm supposed to close in just a few weeks. And then on a fun side, this past weekend, we went down my buddy George's birthday. We went down to the Guadalupe, floated the river, brought out the pizza oven, which is a great thing about the Unis being portable. I think I slang like six pizzas, did a loaded potato pizza, which was pretty good. How about you, Cody? Man, well, that sounds like an exciting little weekend there. I did want to make one correction. I got someone who reached out to me. And for those of you who listened to last week's episode and you're going and flipping that first house within that solo 401k, there are some rules and stipulations you need to be aware of. And there could be circumstances where it is a taxable event. So just wanted to you know, cover my tracks there. Didn't want to give false information on that last episode. If you didn't check that out, it's where Justin and I went super deep into the mega backdoor Roth and the Roth solo 401k. So just wanted to make that quick caveat. In terms of personal life, I had a pretty fun eventful week. I visited my buddy Preston down in Connecticut, visited him with a couple of my college friends. Weather was actually pretty good this past weekend. So had people over at the lake house, got to go swimming. It was nice. And also actually been really busy in business life too. So just got a new tenant in to our office space. He's moving in tomorrow on September 1st. One of my other tenants said she's leaving. So going to have to start marketing that property. With the business I do with Julie Gold City Ventures, we launched this whole new, it's basically like a 10-week series that we're calling the Course Incubator. So that has been a ton of work, a ton of fun too, and excited to kind of see what comes out of it. But yeah, life is definitely not slow for me right now. And it's not slowing down. I have a lot of travel planned in September. And Justin will actually be hanging out. We'll be hanging out at conferences in, in Austin, Texas. But I think that's enough about us. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. 
Alright, so like I mentioned back at the very beginning of the episode, today we have on Tori Dunlap, founder of Her First 100K, and she has had quite the wild ride. First met Tori back in 2018 when she was kind of just getting this thing started, and since then she has scaled this to a multi-seven-figure business. In today's episode, we get into things like financial feminism and the investing gap. We get into once you go viral, how do you actually capture that virality? How do you turn those people into legit followers instead of someone who just reads the article once and forgets about you. What we can do to better connect with an audience, to build that audience, to build trust, to serve before you ask, and so much more in this episode. And if you want to dig deeper into some of the things Tori's going to talk about today, as well as keep up with where she's going next, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Tori. That's thefyshow.com slash T-O-R-I. Take it away, Tori. I was lucky enough to have parents who were committed to educating me financially. So they didn't grow up with a lot. And so we're really intentional about, you know, okay, we're going to have, you know, if we have kids, we're going to give them the life that we didn't have and the opportunities that we didn't have. So they made really smart, frugal financial choices. And money was a very open topic in my house. They told me, here's how to not overspend on credit cards. Here's how to use a credit card responsibly. Here's how to save. Here's how to budget. Here's how to invest. And I knew the business thing was rare. I knew they started the business at age nine thing was not normal. (laughs) But I thought, okay, everybody knows. Everybody knows how to manage money and everybody knows how to negotiate their salaries. And of course, realized very quickly that that wasn't the case. And especially when I was the friend all of my friends were coming to for advice and guidance, especially my female friends. And obviously, you know, I graduated college in May 2016. Trump got elected not soon after that. And I just realized I was coming into a very different America than I expected. I was like, okay, I'm coming into womanhood, coming into adulthood and a very different experience than I think a lot of us thought we were going to get. And when I was having these conversations with women and the more I did research around you know, personal finance, around the financial inequalities, especially between men and women, the more I realized that this was our best form of protest. This was our best form of protest against an inequitable, unjust society was having a financial education, using it to uh, you know, build your life and to have choices available to you. Yeah, I think with that privilege of a financial education came a responsibility for me. It was a responsibility to not only, you know, work to build my own wealth and build my own financial understanding, but to share this information with as many women as I possibly can. And that's why I founded Her First 100K. So stepping through like your background a little bit, because, you know, you did so much there and we hit on the nine years old starting your own side business. And you, you also mentioned, you know, you're having friends coming to you and asking you for advice. Like, what was that like being what I imagine was an outlier, like someone who's nine years old and cares about money? And even as you go up through whatever it is, middle school, high school, where you care about money, but probably those around you don't like, were you able to get some friends on board? Did people look at you kind of strange? Is it something you kept to yourself? Like, what was that like? Yeah, it was actually my grade school. Every other year, it was science fair versus math fair. So one year we do science fair, one year we do math fair. And I think in fourth grade or fifth grade, like one of the maybe the first or second year of having my business, which was vending machines, that was my project at the math fair was like, okay, if I get in this many quarters, you know, how many, how like handfuls of candy, right? How many M&Ms are in this handful of candy? And that was like my math project. So like my classmates knew But I think it would, for me, as I was growing up, especially like in high school, in college, it would have been very easy for me to either not talk about that or to just like gloss over it. But instead, it kind of became my calling card in a lot of ways. It was actually what I wrote my college essay about, like to get into college to apply for school was, 
you know, this starting this business, having my parents help and then, you know, learning profit and loss, learning how to pitch myself, learning how to manage money. I didn't invent anything. I didn't do anything novel. I didn't go on Shark Tank, right? But I knew how to run a business and I knew how to approach people. And and it was a great gift that my parents gave me. And literally, I you know, I went to college at the University of Portland and they had an entrepreneurship program at UP. And the moment I interviewed at UP, they were like, oh, well, you have to check out eScholars. And so that was like part of the plan of college of like, okay, either junior or senior year, I'm going to do eScholars. And so that was, yeah, the the vending machine business that's kind of seemed ridiculous of this like (laughs) 10-year-old who is putting chocolate-covered raisins in a vending machine, you know, (laughs) helped me get into college, helped me get into eScholars and was like one of the first like media stories that I pitched to a lot of these, these media platforms that I ended up being on. So yeah, I think it's, it's very easy. It would have been very easy for me to be like, oh, it was just like this cute little business, like a basically like a lemonade stand equivalent. But I really owned that part of my story and was like, yeah, I learned a lot from it. And I grew a lot of my confidence and I learned how to manage money. And I was writing checks when I was 10 years old. And of course, I knew that wasn't normal. <laughs> it was like, it was a huge part of my financial education and and the the first kind of seed that was planted for me to eventually become an entrepreneur. So just for my own education, is eScholars like some kind of program that pays for your college or what is no. it exactly? No. So it's um, entrepreneurial scholars. It's like speech and debate club or like one of these things where like it's, it was actually the first program of its kind in the country. UP started it like 25 years ago. And it was basically like, what if we get this group of students to apply who want to be entrepreneurs, want to learn how to be an entrepreneur, and they take entrepreneurship classes and basically like kind of get it like a certification at the end. So it was either for junior or seniors, although anybody could really apply. And I did it my senior year. So like I went to, you pick like a business idea, you flesh it out, you do a business design, you know, plan and a business uh, design canvas. And then you go to New York and you meet with people and you talk about your idea. You go abroad. So I ended up going to Japan and talking to people about my business idea. And you basically learn, yeah, what are the steps you need in order to start a business? And it was very interesting. This is a whole other conversation. But the majority of people, it was probably, yeah, 23, 24 of us. I think I was one of four women in the program. And this was 2015, 2016. I was one of the only liberal arts majors. I was definitely the only like theater and communication major. It was a lot of finance bros and a lot of that financial bro energy. And it's very funny. I actually was just talking to another alum of that year. I think I'm the only one now, maybe there's like two of us. I think I'm one of two of that year who are actually now running a business that sustains me. And to be honest, by far the most successful. And so it's very funny because I literally had like my male professor like explain to me, he literally one time called out in class like, oh, Tori, you're a theater major. So I understand you don't get how profit and loss works. So let me explain it to you. And it was even then I was like 2021. And I was like, this is a patriarchal bullshit. I was like, this is some misogynistic bullshit. And so it was just really, really interesting, like doing that program. I learned a lot. But even then learning like, okay, money is not for women. Entrepreneurship is like this novel thing for women, even in, you know, the 21st century. And so yeah, it's it's a reminder to me all the time of like, I learned a lot from my entrepreneurship journeys. I learned a lot from not only what I was taught, but the environments I was in of, okay, if I can not only apply what I learned in terms of like textbook learning, but also in terms of like my general experiences as a woman in these male dominated spaces and me putting myself out there and pitching my story this will impact my life and impact my business and allow me to impact other women. 
So we've obviously been talking a lot about the entrepreneurship, like you had that bug so early. And, you know, I guess you could kind of stop and wonder, like, why you even went to college? Like, did you go to college because you maybe had some pause in your head and think that maybe you were going to go into more traditional work? Or was it just to get some additional education around, like, tools for this entrepreneurial journey that you knew you were going to go on? Yeah, that's a really good question. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur eventually, but I went into college. For me, it was um, my dad went to college. My mom did not. My dad was the first one in his family to go to college. And so, again, like I was mentioning before, of their commitment for me was like, she will go to college. Like, we will make it happen so we can contribute a little bit, but she's also going to help. Like, we're going to send her to college. And so that was never actually off the table in terms of like, I knew I was going to school. And when I got into college, and especially like senior year, I had this fantasy of like, okay, I'm going to walk down streets in a pencil skirt and a blazer and have my coffee and a briefcase. And I'm going to be like VP of marketing by 30. And that was the plan was like, I'm going to get in the corporate world, work my way up the corporate ladder. That's what I wanted to do. And so I graduated college, got into my first like big girl job. And within two weeks was like, this is not going to be for me forever. Like I knew pretty much immediately. I loved a lot of the work I was doing, but I didn't respect a lot of the people I was working for and didn't like making somebody else rich and didn't like being told you have to show up 40 hours button chair even if you only have 30 hours of work and also you can only take this amount of time off and it was just not the environment that I wanted and and you know I would have good experiences at you know different corporate jobs you know maybe I had a good boss or I loved my work but there was still this itch for me I never cared as much about a corporate job as I cared about the the stuff I was building, my own thing. And so I got my first job, yeah, right after I graduated in May of 2016 and started what later became her first 100K in December of 2016. So I was running it as a side hustle in addition to my nine to five in marketing. And Justin, like I thought I'll work a nine to five job, I'll get a lot of good experience. And maybe when I'm 30, I can I can be able to quit and run my thing full time and then ended up doing it when I was 25. I think I read somewhere that you have never left a job interview or just a review with a boss without negotiating or trying to get a higher salary, getting a better position. You're 22 years old, like going into that first job. I'm guessing that's probably how old you were. That's how old I was for my first job anyway. One, where do you get the confidence to do that? And two, what tactics are you using to actually, you know, get $10,000 plus raises? It was funny. The first time I negotiated was... Even before I got my first corporate job, I uh, I got a freelance social media contract before I ever landed a corporate job. So before I even was working, you know, a traditional nine to five job in social media or in marketing, I was negotiating for a freelance contract. And I remember negotiating that one. And yeah, I mean, especially we get told and I think, you know, post 2008, we're told this all the time. Now in COVID, right, you're told, like, you should just be lucky you have a job. Like, don't negotiate, and especially as a woman. Like, you should just be lucky at all. You don't want to be perceived as ungrateful. Just, like, take the opportunity. Yes, gratitude, super important. However, you have skills, even if you are just exiting college, that are useful. And you are allowed and should negotiate every single opportunity you have. And so for me, especially in an industry like social media, I knew more about social media than any of the people who had been working for 10 years who were going to be on my team because I had grown up with it. It was something that was very much, you know, in my blood at that time, right? And I think when other people from other industries, especially college students, come to me and they're like, what do I have? I don't have any real world experience. I'm like, you have more hustle than probably anybody else you're going to work with because you have to prove yourself, 
right? So you're going to get in there and you're going to hustle harder than anybody else. So that's a one negotiating factor. And the second is that you're coming in as a clean slate. You're like, mold me how you want me, right? Train me to do the things that you want to do in the way you would like them done. People who have 5, 10, 20 years of experience are not always that adaptable, are not always that moldable. And so I think when I presented myself in a negotiation, I was really clear about like, okay, here's what I bring to the table. Yes, I don't have a lot of on paper experience, but I have internships. I have very, you know, I was editor of our yearbook in college. So I literally had something physical that I could show them. Like here's 212 pages that I oversaw. So that was a huge thing. And then also knowing yeah, I'm going to hustle harder for you. I'm coming to you to learn and to be really excited about all these things. And I think that that was really helpful in terms of me negotiating. And now I teach women all over the world how to negotiate. And the two biggest things are your data and your value. So what data can you present in terms of like market research that proves that you're worth this amount of money? Because I would love all of us to be like, I'm worth a million dollars, right? But that doesn't mean anything unless you can back it up. And the second thing is, what is the value that you're bringing to the organization? What ways have you saved the company money? What are you bringing to the table from your previous job, previous experience that you know is valuable to this particular company? And it's not just your work performance. It's not just like your skills or your experience. For me, I mean, I was entering a lot of these spaces as one, potentially the only woman. And so I think that that was part of actually my negotiation is what is not only am I bringing, you know, me being good at my job, I'm bringing a diverse perspective. I'm bringing, you know, this hopefully breath of fresh air that your company really needs. So yeah, that was for me the the kind of strategic part of being able to negotiate even early on. As part of that negotiation, you just mentioned the word data, right? And so I'm thinking about as I've went through some corporate things, which I was in the military before. So all this idea of negotiation was just different because we didn't have that. <laughs> but like, you know, one thing that became very apparent to me is that's difficult is knowing kind of what the salary band even is. Like, what are your coworkers making? And after I started having more conversations with coworkers and figuring out what they were making, it definitely opened my eyes up to this idea of kind of like keeping up with the Joneses, but in a good way, right? Like, like I'm trying to keep, I'm, I want to make what they're making. I'm just curious if that was ever part of also like your research is knowing, hey, this person over here is making like 30% more than me. I want to fix that. Yeah, this is what I teach clients is we have a lot of these what I call like 2D research outlets, Glassdoor, salary.com, right? Those are great starting places, but they are not viewing you as the three-dimensional person you are, right? They don't know that you took this particular certification, right? They don't know that you have this particular skill set, right? If I just search social media manager in Seattle, that is so broad, right? That is not very specific. And so I think it's really important that when you do your research, when you're trying to find data, your data is not just what is Glassdoor or salary.com telling you. It is what are people around you making or literally going to friends. This is literally what I advise. It's like if I'm going to apply for a job, let's say in marketing, I'm going to other marketers, literally presenting them the job description and saying, hey, based on what you know about me and what they're asking for, what would you price this role at? You can do this with LinkedIn connection. You can do this with somebody you met at a networking event. You can do this with a previous boss. And if you feel comfortable, do this with somebody at your current company. And I think that's hugely helpful. And then as well, having transparent conversations about salary. Jean Chatsky, who's another amazing financial expert, she has this concept of the over or under rule, which is like, if you don't feel comfortable directly asking somebody, what are you making, right? You could say, hey, are you making over or under $80,000 a year? You have a general idea then 
right? If they're like, oh, over, then you could ask them a follow-up. Are you making over or under 100? Oh, I'm making under. So you know generally now there's between 80 and 100, right? And that's more information than you started with. So I think that, yeah, you have to get data that is particular to you, particular to a company, particular to your skill set, because that's your most compelling form of data. It's especially a lot of employers ask to see what data you did or what research you did. And if you're like, oh, I just I looked on Glassdoor, like that's not going to cut it. So you have to go deeper than that. So this may sound like an interesting question, but I'll give you some context. But the question is, how hard should you work at your job? And just for some context, there's some jobs, <laughs> if you have a job that has incentive pay and you crush it and you make more, awesome. But there's some jobs where your boss is asking you to work 80 hours a week and maybe you're only contracted to work 40 and you don't get any <laughs> extra pay after that. So I will let you take that question in any direction you want, Tori, but I'm just really curious to hear the answer. I've never been asked this question before and it's a great one. I'm going to be honest, I've never admitted this. The amount of times that I worked corporate and went to the bathroom and then was there posting on my own Instagram or responding to my side hustle emails, literally not even standing in the bathroom. I'm going to be honest with you, literally sitting on the toilet, <laughs> like answering emails. Like I did more side hustle work in the bathroom at my nine to five than I have ever admitted before. So I mean, ugh, it's hard. It depends on your goals. That's what I'll say. If your goal is to get a promotion, Yes, you need to work your butt off, but you also should not be working. If you're getting paid for 40 hours and you're working 80, you are doing literally double the amount of work and only half of it's compensated. So that's an equation where you either need to cut your hours, you need to ask to be compensated fairly for that. But if you know you want to work your way up the corporate ladder, you want to continue your corporate career, yeah, work really hard, prove yourself. I was doing above the bare minimum, but not by much, in order for me to continue corporate. I was getting raises. I got, I think, at least a 10% raise every time at like my annual review. So I was doing just fine. But there was a lot of phoning it in going on because I knew, especially in that last year, like when her first 100K was taken off, when I was on Good Morning America, like I had a lot of stress trying to manage both, just like emotionally. I was feeling guilt that I was not probably showing up as much for my corporate job as I should have been. But ultimately, that was 100% the right choice because I was one foot out the door. So it really does depend on like what your goals are. What do you want out of your career? If you want to be an entrepreneur and you're actively building something, I would say do what you got to do in order to get your salary. But your mental energy needs to go to the thing you're building. Like, do everything you can to keep your job. Like, don't don't blow off your job. That That is your money that you need in order to build your business. But like, I would say it's, you know, slightly above average and you're good. <laughs> I've never been asked that question before. It's a good one, though. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point when you think about, like, can you tie that extra work that you're doing to an actual benefit? Like, is it actually moving the needle is your raises better this year because you put your foot on the gas a little bit? Because oftentimes it's probably not. Like a lot of times we probably are doing work that we could just do tomorrow and honestly nothing would change. Like, it, you know, it's this big machine that you work inside of. So I think that's a great point. Now, but when you're, I know that you, you know, you work with individuals, you, you do a lot of coursework, you know, I know you're really trying to help, especially other females out there, hit those numbers that they're wanting to hit. Is it difficult for you as someone who is, really more focused on like entrepreneurial work to work with somebody who is in more of a corporate structure and a corporate path that has no interest in entrepreneurship and not like try to encourage them to take on entrepreneurship. Like, cause I know 
you know, whether it's like us being into financial independence, everybody we meet, we want to talk them into doing financial independence. I'm sure everybody who Cody meets, like he's trying to get them to start a business. Like, is that something where maybe you struggle to shut that off and say like, no, this person has no interest in entrepreneurship. That's not what they want. Let's just focus on their corporate career. That's another really good question. My focus is not entrepreneurship. That is a outcome or a means to my larger mission, which is financial feminism, which is how do we use money as a tool in order to bridge the wealth inequality gap, right? How do we get a financial foundation as women in order to increase our power, increase our our standing in the world? So plenty of people, I mean, probably 75, maybe 80% of my following is not an entrepreneur and maybe has no plans to in the re- in the soon to be future, right? And actually it was far less than I expected, or excuse me, far more in terms of wanting to stay the corporate route. However, I will say for me personally, you know, I talked about my 100K goal. So I hit, you know, 100K saved at 25. I am now financially independent at 27. How did that happen? It was entrepreneurship. Like I am making 40 times my corporate salary in those two years. So it took me from 21 to 25 to get to that 100K and took me from 25 to really like 26. I just turned 27 to become financially independent that I never have to work again, of course, if I don't want to. So the numbers for me don't lie, right? It's like you can get financially independent on a corporate salary, 100%. For me, I got there way quicker than I thought I would be able to And it was because I had a business. Now, that business has been successful. It's been profitable. I was really intentional about building a business that could sustain myself and sustain my life and sustain my goals before I quit my nine to five. This has been very much like years long of growing it very slowly and then seemingly overnight success. It has not been overnight success by any means. But when I do look at my own numbers, it's pretty obvious to me that entrepreneurship, of course, was was the flip. But I'm not going to say you can't get there unless you're an entrepreneur. That's not accurate. And I also am a single woman. I don't have anybody dependent on me, whether that's a child or a sick family member. You know, I I don't own a home. I still rent, which is flexible for my life. I was able to make a lot of these choices and these decisions because it only impacted me. And there's plenty of people, of course, who have a lot of other equations in the financial independence picture where maybe they can't quit their job and take the risk to be an entrepreneur because they need that steady salary or they need that 401k match or they need that health insurance for their family. So I think for me, yes, uh, entrepreneurship was 100% what I wanted to do and 100% the reason, I should say like 95% of the reason why I hit FI as soon as I did. But that's not for everybody. And I'm not going to ever force that on somebody because you can get there without being an entrepreneur. So one, happy late birthday, Tori. Thank you. <laughs> I see some balloons in the background. I don't know if that's birthday. Oh, I don't know if that's 100K. milestone. It's 100K <laughs> balloons. Yeah, those are like a year old and they're, they're still somehow fully inflated. I don't know how. They, but they're the balloons that won't die. When I move, I'm about to digital nomad um, in two weeks. Like I'm, I'm, you can probably see the stuff in the back. I'm packing up my apartment, but I'm going to have to puncture the balloons and I'm not happy about it. I'm super bummed. <laughs> those have some longevity. They do. <laughs> So on the topic of financial feminism, which you just brought up, I want to talk about the investing gap. I've heard that term on probably dozens of the podcasts, interviews, videos that I've watched you on. And it's a term that I haven't really heard before. So I'd love if you could explain that a bit. Sure. So we know about the wage gap, 
right? It's 78 cents to a man's dollar. That's on average. The average woman will make over the course of her lifetime 78 cents to every white man's dollar. And it's even worse if you're a woman of color. If you're a black woman, if you're a Latina, like your numbers are even worse than that. We are talking about the wage gap a lot as we should. That's a huge issue, right? But the thing I'm not seeing discussed enough is the investing gap. It has been proven that women either wait longer to invest than men or they don't invest at all. And we wonder why that is. I could give you a million reasons, but the perfect is a very visual example. When you think of Wall Street, have either of you been to New York? New York yeah, City? Yes. Financial District? Okay. So if you go to the Financial District in New York City, you know that in front of the New York Stock Exchange is a bull sculpture. It is a sculpture of a bull, this huge like bronze bull. Not only is that the most masculine symbol, right, that you've probably ever seen, the thing that you do in New York is you go up to its testicles and you rub its testicles for financial prosperity. You literally cup its balls in order to, you know, grow your wealth as like a, you know, toss a penny in a fountain, touch the bull's balls. If that doesn't sum up why investing was, quote unquote, not built for women, like, I don't know what else can. So we're told actively as women, oh, investing's not for you. Investing's too complicated. Like, stock market, again, it's not for you. It's not your space. And it's confirmed through a bull sculpture, through 90% of people who work on Wall Street being men, through just trying to Google or, uh, you know, come into spaces where the stock market or cryptocurrency is being discussed and literally actively being told, oh, this isn't for you, though. Or when you do try to ask a question, oh, that's a stupid question. You should know this already. This still happens. It's 2021. And back when we had this like AMC craziness, I literally had women in my community come to me and they said, I tried to join these Reddit forums to understand. And they literally told me I couldn't because I was a woman. Like they literally intimidated me out of these spaces. So when we talk about the investing gap, it's not just, you know, this knowledge, this lack of knowledge about how to invest. It's also literally every woman I talk to who hasn't hasn't started investing, their number one thing is I'm too intimidated to start. I don't know how to start. And because they're too intimidated, because they don't have these non-judgmental safe spaces to ask questions, because they've been told their entire lives that investing isn't for them or that investing is gambling or that, you know, don't worry about the stock market, learn how to coupon clip and learn how to save money. You are losing potentially millions of dollars over the course of your lifetime by either waiting to invest or not invest. And a story that I'm telling in my book, I was on a panel a couple of years ago with a, a financial advisor, and she talked about this teacher, and we'll call her Rose. And I never get through this story without crying, but I'm going to try. Rose was 65. She was, a, she was a teacher. She diligently saved Every single, every single time she got a paycheck, she put part of that paycheck into her 401k or into a, a brokerage account because that's what she was told to do. So we love that, right? She knew she was supposed to invest. That's a huge step because a lot of women don't even get there. She went to a financial advisor and she's like, okay, I think I'm ready to retire. You know, I'm 65. I've worked my entire life. I've saved this amount of money. I should be ready to go. And what the financial advisor realized is she had never actually invested her money. She had put the money in an account, in a brokerage or an investment account, but never actually chosen her stocks or her mutual funds. She had never actually taken the second step of investing. So instead of $300,000 over the course of her lifetime turning into millions, it was $300,000 just sitting in like financial purgatory 
this cute little, little, you know, the little old lady who had been a teacher and worked super hard to save her entire life could no longer afford to retire because she had never invested her money. And that for me is like the perfect example of this lack of education actively harming women specifically. I can't tell you the amount of women who are like, I blow their mind when I tell them that it's a two-step process. A Roth IRA is not an investment. That's the account in which you put money into. And then you have to go buy things with the money, right? You go buy stocks, you go buy index funds, whatever that looks like. And Rose was a side effect of that. And that is the story I literally think about every day when I come to work of like, if I can make sure and as many women as possible understand the power of investing, understand that it is for them. It's their best form of protest. It's their best form of wealth building and teaching them all of just the simple semantics of it's two steps. It's not just one, it's two, right? We can utterly transform not only individuals, not only these women in their individual personal finances, but end up transforming the entire equality picture. So this gap between women and men when it comes to investing is not just financial. It's not just they're not investing or they're waiting longer to invest. It's this massive education gap and the way we just discuss investing and who it's for. So, you know, at, at my job, like I welcome being kind of typecasted as the person who's really into finance, who likes talking about money. And I actually just had a, a one-on-one Zoom call with a girl I work with on our team yesterday where we're kind of going over finance stuff because she almost signed up for this like $4,000 course. And I'm like, let's let's just chat for a little bit before you drop that kind of money on something. And, you know, me and Cody, two dudes, like, how can we be allies? Like, what are some recommendations other than, you know, simple situations like that where you just have an open, honest, unintimidating conversation? Hopefully that's a good first step. But are there any other things you'd recommend? I appreciate you asking this question. First of all is have open and transparent conversations with every woman in your life. If you're straight, have conversations with your partners. If you have female friends, if you have female coworkers, right, have conversations about money. And not just, you know, like, here's how, here's how to money. Those are great. But if you actively know, for instance, that your coworker who's a woman is making less money than you, you are almost obligated to tell her your salary and to advocate for her. If she gets stepped over at work, if somebody steals her idea in the middle of a meeting, I can't tell you the amount of women I've talked to. In my own experience, if I will say something and then five minutes later, a dude will say the same thing. And of course, you know, it's like his idea. So that's a perfect time where you're like, actually, you know, ex woman, that was that was her idea she brought up five minutes ago. And I thought it was a great idea. Right. Simple things like that can be huge. Or, hey, I'm going to this really important meeting. I think it'd be great if you sat in like making sure that they're in, you know, Hamilton, but the room where it happens. Right. I would say in addition, the financial financial independence community. And I know both of you have read about this and seen this. I think we're making a lot of strides towards a more equitable space. But when we talk about financial independence, especially in the traditional like Mr. Money Mustache like era of financial independence, it was very much like cut everything you can, right? And ride your bike everywhere and, you know, work your way up the corporate ladder and save a bunch of your money and, you know, basically do everything you can to increase your savings rate. And something as simple as if I get off work at 530 and it's winter and it's dark outside, I can't ride my bike home. That is a risk to my safety as a woman. I can't ride my bike home, right? Or if I am out with friends at 1030 at night and I'm trying to get back to my apartment or back to my house, I'm not taking public transportation. 
I'm, I'm probably not taking a bus. I am paying the extra cost to take an Uber because that's a safety concern for me, right? Or there's certain aspects, right, where I'm going to either pay more or earn less as a woman. Wage gap, investing gap, all of these things, the pink tax. So when you are having conversations about financial independence, these blanket statements just don't work. And I think it's really important to have nuance and to just be aware that if you are a Black person, financial independence is going to be different for you. If you're a woman, it's going to be different. If you're a mom, if you're, you know, this person with these sorts of circumstances, your financial independence picture is going to be different. And then I would say the third thing is consume financial media from diverse voices. You know, I'm talking about issues that I didn't see a lot of men talk about, just like, you know, women of color are talking about issues that I want to talk more about. So I think it's really important to, you know, not just listen to two or three people who all look the same. Get your financial independence advice, get your financial advice from a bunch of different people with a bunch of different circumstances. Because maybe it's not the advice that you're going to take because it's slightly different from your situation, but now you're more aware. You're more aware of other voices, of other struggles, of other wins that are out there besides just someone from your demographic. Well, thank you for all of that. Super helpful and opens my eyes and helps me understand what I can do more. I do want to take a quick pivot, though, because just the scale that you've been able to impact people, I think that's super important because you can do all the stuff you're talking about right there. But if it's only five people, obviously, that's awesome. Like if you can even impact one person's life, amazing. But you're reaching millions of people. And I honestly thought like when that first Good Morning America, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong with like your first big break where you got like tons of media exposure. So many people started following you. And then it seemed like after that, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You discovered TikTok and then it was just even more hockey stick growth from there. I'd love to kind of hear how you've been expanding and reaching all these people. Like, what was it about those certain, whether it was the platform, whether it was the people we were connecting with that allowed you to scale where you can help literally millions of women at this point? So I was on GMA in October of 2019. At the time, I had 8,000 followers. Now we have 2 million. It's what, August of 2021. So in little under two years, we went from 8,000 to 2 million. And I'm honestly still flabbergasted. Like, I'm still, like, I I have to, like, zoom out for us from the trees occasionally and just, like, realize just how crazy that is. And just thinking about, yeah, in, like, 2019, I was ecstatic when I was on, like, CNBC. And not that I'm not ecstatic anymore, but that is now, like, a two to three time weekly occurrence. Like, it's crazy. And I used to get messages from women every day that our work was impacting their life or changing their life. Now it's every five minutes. It's a comment or it's a DM or it's a, you know, an email. And that's just the crazy part. It's just, this is so much bigger than me now, which is the absolute coolest. And this is what I wanted to do. And I mean, we're not even close to done yet. So it's, it's just been absolutely nuts to think about our growth. And I think that women especially were craving this sort of education in this way, in a safe, non-judgmental space that, again, not only saw personal finance as necessary for an individual, but also let's talk about the larger systemic issues at play here, right? Let's talk about the wage gaps. Let's talk about a racial wealth gap. Let's talk about all of these barriers that society has created to block women from building wealth. And 
Yeah, it's just been so crazy to see. It's been my biggest goal in my entire life and what I believe I was put on this earth to do. And I think it's a combination, of course, of pandemic and getting on TikTok at the right time and being consistent on that platform and and also building systems. This is more like in the weeds business. But I think, Cody, especially you'll appreciate this, is it's like what I've realized is it's really cool to go viral. Like it's really cool to go viral. But if you don't do anything with it, it doesn't mean anything. Right. So there were plenty of times, especially in the early days, where I was scrambling of like, oh, my gosh, I'm on GMA in like two days. Okay, how am I going to set up my business to like make the most of it? Because I don't know when it's going to happen again. And now we've created the perfect example of this is I went viral. Oh, gosh, what is it? August. This was like June for talking about my investing strategy. And what we had done the month before is we had set up a free quiz where people could come and get personalized resources to meet their biggest financial goal in exchange for their email. So in the caption of that post and in the link in my bio on TikTok, I had said, hey, link in bio for this free quiz for resources. And within a week, we had 100,000 email subscribers, in a, like additional. So in a week, we went from like 40,000 email subscribers to 140,000. And for me, that was a perfect example of these systems are hard to set up. <laughs> like we spent, it was my team and I, we spent a lot of time like creating this quiz, getting the, you know, the email funnel that happens after the quiz, putting all these resources together. The logistics of that were challenging. But now once we have it, it just runs for us. And we could take advantage of this virality to make us money, to grow our audience, to not, you know, just get more followers on a borrowed platform like TikTok, but to actually get direct access to these, these people. And I think that that was part of our success is it wasn't just these viral moments. It was, let's take advantage of the virality to continue to connect with people. I don't want you to just see me or see my content for 60 seconds and never engage with me again. How do I make sure that we can build a relationship from here on out that's not just a one and done? And we just talked about like how crazy that rapid growth was. And then in there you mentioned, but we're just getting started. So with this crazy growth and where you are now, I'm sure it's hard to tell what like two years in the future look like, because obviously two years ago, you probably wouldn't have seen where you are now. But kind of what are you thinking about as those like next things to step into or, or you know, where you see this going from here? I always like to say that I want to be Tony Robbins, but less icky. So uh, <laughs> that's my goal is I want the TV shows and I want the books and I want the stadium tour. Like I very much see her first 100K and our podcast Financial Feminist more as a feminist brand that happens to talk about money rather than a personal finance brand that is feminist. And I don't think really anybody in the women's space is approaching money in that way. We have, you know, self-development or business or career, right? But there's not a lot of people actually talking about personal finance in that way. So I signed a book deal with HarperCollins. I'm actually off to Europe, knock on wood. Please, please, God, I hope it happens. Europe's like tempting closing right now. And I'm like on the edge of my seat. So I'm supposed to go to Europe for two months in September and October and start writing or continue writing my book. We have, you know, we're working on potentially a TV show. We have a lot of plans for where we're going and what we're doing. But really, it's how do we impact as many people as possible? How do we make sure that this advice gets to every single woman? Because I've seen firsthand in my own life and with these messages just how important this advice is. Women who are able to leave their abusive partners because they have enough money to do so. Women who are starting businesses, women who are retiring early or getting a $20,000 raise. Like this is a daily, like hourly occurrence for us of hearing these stories. And 
yeah, the podcast is going to continue to expand. Like that just blew up. Even I, who set like these crazy goals was like, oh, maybe we can be in the top like 20 business podcasts. And we hit the number one spot dethroning Dave Ramsey within 72 hours of release. Like just crazy. So that'll continue growing. I also just have goals for myself personally. I am super ambitious and that's become a drug. It's it's super fun. It's super great. It's also very easy to overdose. And so I'm learning about, you know, how do I take care of myself? How do I prioritize my mental health? How do I take care of my team? As we've grown, you know, 98% of the feedback we get is phenomenal. The other 2% is really loud and really harsh. So that's definitely part of it is, is making sure, of course, that, you know, we're growing in a sustainable way, not just from the business perspective, but, you know, taking care of myself and my output. I can't pour from an empty cup. So making sure I'm setting boundaries and prioritizing my health is something I have to continue to learn how to do in the next couple of years. So talking about growth, I feel like that question was kind of all based around what's going on in the next couple of years. You know, we have a ton of entrepreneurs, small business owners in the audience. And I'm kind of curious, I want to dig into like what made some of those top videos viral? Like how can people kind of tap into, you know, the, the Tory secret sauce that made, <laughs> that made you get millions of viewers? Like I know you mentioned that one where you kind of talked about your investing strategy. You're probably, actually, I watched that one, super transparent, but I know you've had multiple videos that have reached in the millions of views on TikTok. Like, what was it about those videos and what can other people take into their own businesses to kind of maybe replicate some of that virality? I'm going to give you like a million dollar TikTok secret. You ready? (laughs) All right. You need to catch somebody's attention within the first three seconds. And that sounds so obvious, but like, if your point doesn't come until minute or a second 10 or further in the video, you have lost that person. And it typically needs to be some sort of exclamatory statement, right? So for me, I have enough to save, you know, I have six, I'll have $6 million saved by the time I retire and I'm only 26. Here's how I'm doing it, right? I have caught your attention and you're going, what? $6 million, <laughs> but what, what? And you're going to be interested, right? So I've not only caught your attention, but I've said something that seems a little crazy. And it doesn't have to be, right, that exact thing, right? But it can be something like that, like... I grew my Instagram audience by 2K in the last week. Here's how I did it. Or I got on Good Morning America. Here's how I did it. So that's the first thing is catch their attention. Say something crazy. It obviously needs to be accurate. But like think in terms of headlines. Like what is the headline you read on CNBC? Now it's always like 30-year-old white man saves a million dollars. But, you know, (laughs) think of it in terms of that, of like what is the thing that's going to get you to engage right off the bat? Because you don't have a bunch of time. You have like three seconds to really hook them in. So that's the first thing. The second thing is regardless of what platform you're on, this is my number one rule when it comes to marketing. Serve before you sell. Always. Before you ask somebody to do anything for you, whether that's sign up for your email list, buy your product, follow you, you need to make sure that you are providing value always, always, always. Because if I am looking to build trust and credibility with you, and I ask you for something, that's not a good time, right? If somebody came up to you on the street and they're like, hey, buy my shit, <laughs> that's not gonna work, <laughs> right? And so you need to have built a relationship with them that showcases you as an expert and also showcases why you are deserving of a follow, of their money, of their you know, insert word here, right? So I think it's super important that you're always leading with value and always showcasing why you're an expert in this, and how you can give to somebody. I think too many people think, oh, I'll sell my product and it'll be really good, and then I'll get people to follow me. 
because my product's really good. That's not how this works. You have to do the exact opposite. You have to serve, provide value, build trust. And then when you go to sell, it's going to be totally obvious that they should buy from you because you've already built that trust. Like, oh, she gave me so much good value. Wow, imagine what her paid stuff looks like. Yeah, happy to. Happy to support her, interested in learning more. Well, Tori, we've covered a ton of stuff in this episode. You have a very interesting story, and I know we're all like curious to watch where it goes from here. Where's like a, some good places people can keep up with you, learn more about you know what you're about, and just be a part of what you're building on these different platforms? Yeah, I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, you can find me at her first under K and all the socials H E R F I R S T one zero zero K. I'm primarily on Instagram and TikTok. And like I mentioned, we have launched our podcast called Financial Feminists. It's available on all the places you'd get a podcast. A season one is entirely out, so you can go binge the entire season. And we're hard at work on season two launching next year. So we'd love to see you in one of our communities. Tori, just want to echo what Justin said and I really appreciate you coming on. I know you have been probably busier this year than you've ever been in your entire life, just with all the growth, with all the stuff you're doing. So happy to have you on, talk about financial feminism, all the stuff you're doing with Her First 100K. Just want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It was a great conversation. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.